I want to explain something to you, which is that um, one of the things that God has been pleased to do is to give us uh, physical things as part of our worship. And you see the men mopping up the water. It's very hard to use a horse tank without getting a lot of water on the floor. And water is dangerous because people slip and slide on the water and they fall down. And, you know, if you think about it, people that live in a university community can come up with a whole lot of better ways of dealing with an initiation rite than water. You know, water has to be pumped into the tank. Then it's a pain getting rid of it. They get wet. They can slide. There's just so many reasons that God should be above physicality. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? And if God were as sophisticated as academics are, God would not have used water, and he wouldn't have used manna, and he wouldn't have used uh, the, the wine and the bread in the Lord's Supper. He would have realized that those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And what that means is no physicality, right? But what God knows is that you and I are weak and that we need physicality. If there hadn't been water this morning, Ginger would not have been afraid that she was going to drown. And she was afraid that she was going to drown. She was baptized in the first service. Tell them the truth, Ginger. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And so God's so sweet so understanding and kind that he lowers himself to us and he deals with our flesh he deals with bread and wine he deals with water now I always have a point usually <laughs> and my point this morning is we're very resistant to have any bodily actions in worship and the reason is that we do not like physicality when it comes to our souls. We don't like to be baptized. We don't like to have to come forward and have somebody actually serve as person to person with the Lord's Supper. Now, on the other hand, once we do it, we love it. You know, so many things in life are like that. We're very resistant and then the blessings are beautiful, and there's nothing I like more than having the personal of the elders and me when, we, when I serve them. I love that, you know? And so we wanted to share that with you, and that's why we don't have you staring at the nape of the neck of people now any longer when you take communion here. You know, in the old days, you just like look down and have spiritual thoughts or look at the back or try to pray or not think of the... You know, now we have you come forward and there's meaning exchange. You like physically join the narrative. All right. I'm just proving to you I can actually use those words. So here's the hook. The hook is, I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. When people are leading you in worship, if they lift your hands, you lift your hands. Do you understand that? This is not a choice. I asked you to be seated. Not one of you stood and said, it's my right to stand if I want to. Why? Well, because 
your pride isn't violated when you sit. But I'll bet most of you know yourself well enough to know that when we tell you to stand, you do sometimes just a little bit kind of resent it. You know? Because standing is harder on your pride than sitting. Do you understand that? Okay? Lifting your hands is even harder. I never lift my hands naturally. Never. Okay? Let's just get over with the idea that I do it because it's natural. It's not. But when I lift it, I then have the picture, and I was going to use Brie for this, one of our grandchildren. You know, Brie is exactly at the age that presents to you the picture of why you lift your hands. Because when Brie comes to her daddy and her mother, she comes like this. Any of you ever seen picture of the wailing wall in Jerusalem? Have you ever seen a picture of the wailing wall? How do the men stand at the wailing wall? Like this. And in scripture it says that men are to pray with hands lifted. Is that what it says? Okay, thank you, Christopher. No, it says with holy hands. Now how will you know whether your hands are holy if we always suppress your hands lifted? You know, the Bible says, pray with men, pray with holy hands lifted. And so you go to lift your hands, and all of a sudden you think, are my hands holy? And you realize they're not. And then you confess your sins to God. You see, physicality is important in worship. Bodies are not an accident. God made them. And our bodies are important even after we die. And that's why we don't cremate. Because we don't rob loved ones of the opportunity of loving the body that was the vessel that God made for the, for the person. Do, do you understand that? This is the reason that when Jesus' body was in the tomb, the women that loved him came to put spices and, and, and perfume on him. Because that body was loved. And so, in the resurrection, what's going to happen? Our souls are going to be reunited with our bodies. In other words, bodies are good. And the more our culture perverts bodies and corrupts them, the more it seduces you to treat your body as if it were trash and to dirty it, right? You understand this. The more that happens, the more Christian faith is is going to feel a pressure to disembody itself. You understand that. And so all of you have this pressure to make your worship spiritual. And what you mean by that is not that your heart is holy and the hands lifted are holy and you're pure with God. What you mean by that is disembodied. And so what we've seen is a a complete decline of the body in, in, in worship. To the point where the previous church I was at, when I came there, there was absolutely no standing. You, you came into worship and started worship with a call to worship, and, and, and there was no standing. And so in the staff meeting, I said, hey, can we stand at the beginning of worship, please? I was a senior pastor. And the worship leader said, no. God doesn't need us to stand. He knows what's in our hearts. 
I said, okay, so like if the queen comes in, we can all sit? Is it, have any of you ever lived in, in, in a country with a king or a queen? <laughs> can you even conceive of the queen coming into a room and everybody not standing? You don't even speak to her unless she speaks to you. Thank you very much. And yet we waltz into the presence of God and sit down and, and then you begin to see that what's really going on is that everything is about you and nothing is about him. Do you understand me? Now all that is a lead up. <laughs> and here's what I'm going to do. Every man and every boy, not the women, not the girls, because God makes distinctions between men and women. All right? And he says, holy man, with hands lifted. Every man here, as I pray, is going to stand and lift his hands. And if your hands aren't holy, you're going to lift them and confess your sins to God. Because we're never holy. Now, men, stand and lift your hands as I pray. Every one of you. Every single one of you. That's a command. Now, let us pray. Father God, we enter your presence with thanksgiving and joy as your little babies. We come to you knowing that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. It is our delight and privilege to come to you for meat, for bread, to come to you for warmth, for shelter, to come to you for love, to come to you for forgiveness. Daddy, Abba, Father, would you please, Father, lower yourself and receive our worship? We know that it's faulty. We know our sins. We know that these hands are stained with so much that is disobedient to you, our Father. Would you look with pity and love on us and forgive us? And would you declare our worship acceptable through the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us at your right hand. Father, we thank you for the work of your Son who has made it possible for us to become adopted sons of yours, adoptive brothers of his. What an unbelievable dignity the Christian has to be called a brother of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, men and women together, brothers of Jesus Christ, we bring to you our concerns this day. Father, we ask you for David and Terry Ann as they're going through very difficult things over in Africa. Would you please be merciful to them? Would you give David wisdom as he works with the faculty and the board of the Theological College of Central Africa? And would you be pleased to be merciful, to bring repentance and faith to all the members of that faculty. Be with Joni as she walks a difficult road. We pray that you will keep her from discouragement there also. Prepare the way for David and Terry Ann's move to Lusaka, we pray. Give Terry wisdom as she counsels her husband and how he should conduct himself in this situation. We pray that you will also be with their children, that they may not worry about their children at this time as they go through these difficulties. Father, we thank you for the birth of David. What a wonderful gift. And we pray as Michael and Emily and 
Peter and Jamie and others continue to grieve the death of their loved ones, that you will comfort them and that they will realize that in you and your son and your spirit that they have a friend that stays closer than a brother. Father, we pray as we as a church move into the future that you will help those of us who are older to not be weary and well-doing. We pray that we will be faithful in supporting the young couples and their children. We pray that you will continue to bless us with children and that we will not be afraid. Give mothers and fathers self-discipline to give themselves to their children and us as grandparents to our grandchildren. We pray, Father, for Sally. We pray for Nana, that you will give them faith, that they will not be afraid of the valley of the shadow of death. We pray, Father, for nurses and doctors, for Adam and others here as they care for the needy, Caleb and Linda. We pray for Brandon, Lord, that you will be merciful to him. We pray that he will repent and turn to you and live by faith. We pray, Father, for the new baptism, those who have been baptized this morning, that you will give them faith to persevere to the very end and that they will be found on that day by faith, seated at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will be pleased to feed us through it. We pray that you will open our eyes and hearts. We pray that you will give us faith. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. See, that wasn't so difficult, was it? Huh? Huh? That's another thing. Anytime somebody prays, always match their amen at the end. Speak up. This is your worship service, and the word liturgy means work of the people. And so anytime somebody prays, say amen at the end. And if there's something that you really disagree with in the sermon... If there's something you really agree with, you may say amen. If you disagree, I don't know, I, I'd better not talk about that. I always feel like sermons should be open to people disagreeing. But that's not how we do it in the West. And I'm absolutely convinced if you've known Bob, what you've known is a Jew. And it's inconceivable there would be a bunch of Jews listening to the Apostle Paul preach so long that Eutychus fell out of the window to his death below and that it was a monologue. Do you understand that? Can you imagine Bob allowing how many hours to be a monologue? He'd be inserting statements constantly. And I think that's actually one of the good things about Jews. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're on the 10th chapter, beginning with verse 23. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. 
If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this, meat, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, those of you who are new, um, for the umpteenth time, I'll say, we're in the middle of a long, long discussion of the Apostle Paul about meat sacrificed to idols. In that city, most of the meat would either have been a part of the ritual at the temples to Isis and to a whole bunch of other pagan gods, to the emperor. They would sacrifice and worship the emperor of Rome. Um, Dionysus, a whole bunch of different gods. A lot of the meat had actually been used in the worship rituals. And meat that wasn't used in the worship rituals would still be dedicated to their gods. And so you'd have them take a little bit of the skin and the hair and they'd burn it. And that was their way of blessing it according to their gods. So it was very difficult to eat meat that hadn't in one sense or another been a part of the pagan rituals at the time. And so the church was divided between those who were very, very spiritual and intellectual in their faith and knew that Jesus had come to set us free by grace. And they were going to live in their freedom. And they were not going to allow simpletons and the ignorant and the people that were timid by nature to oppress them in their freedom. And so they were, you know, we should not give in to fear. We should live in freedom. It's for great freedom that Jesus Christ has set us free. And so, you know, idols aren't anything. They're nothing. Only the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And we're free to eat any meat we want. And then on the other side were those who were using their tender consciences and their higher claims to holiness, their higher claims to piety, their more, uh, more spiritual, self-disciplined commitments. Their humility, really. You know what I mean? Their humility to fight against the people who were proud. And so the humble people were very proud of their humility and godliness and holiness. And the proud people were very proud that they were superior intellectually and understood theology better. All right? And that's the division in the church. And so the Apostle Paul is going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with this issue. And it is complicated and a few weeks ago, Mary Lee told me she didn't like my sermon. That's my wife, my beautiful wife, seated here. And there were some good reasons she didn't like my sermon. But at the end, the real reason came out. And that was that what the Apostle Paul was saying that Sunday didn't make any sense and seemed to contradict what he'd already said. And isn't that true that you're reading through the Bible and it contradicts itself, right? Right? 
And so you get there and you go, oh, and you just shut your brain down because we all know logic is higher than the word of God. We all know that the scientific method is higher than the inspiration. We all know that evolution trumps creation, right? We all know this. If, if you don't know it, go to the university. They'll tell you this. We're post, you know, we're, we're, we're empiricists, right? We've been enlightened, right? Thank you. Says, all right. And so you come to a part in scripture where you feel the pressure between it and what came before, and you just want to move on because really our commitments are more to our intellect and our reason than they are to the word of God. Can, can, can I get an amen? Okay, especially mathematicians. All right. Well, here in this text, you're going to run into exactly the same thing. And you're, you're going to go through it and you're going to say, oh, where did that come from? And listen, right where your brain says, where did that come from? What you have to realize is that, that you're wondering where it came from, is a gift from God. Because God does not think the way we think. And part of the reason for that is that God loves having secrets. The secret things, says Deuteronomy 29, 29, belong to him. The things revealed to us and to our children. <laughs> and so that's the first thing you've got to get into your brain. God is God, and he has secrets from you. And some of the problems you have with Scripture are because of his secrets. And it is not appropriate for you to try to learn his secrets. This is the reason that Calvin constantly in the Institutes says, you may be asking the question such and such, and then he immediately says, how dare you? God has chosen to not reveal that to you. How dare you try to see what God has chosen not to reveal to you? So first, you have to get used to God being a God of secrets. Eric Rasmussen, a few years ago, wrote a paper on this. And I don't, did you read that paper? And the whole paper is giving it with a bunch of famous economists around the country. They were celebrating the, the birthday, I think, of an economist at Yale. And so the way they, that economists, well, at least Eric and his buddies celebrate birthdays, is that the wife invites all the major economists to Yale, to New Haven, and they go to the house and they give papers to each other. It just sounds so exciting. And Eric chose to use that opportunity to read a paper about God's pleasure in withholding knowledge from man. You got to love him. He's not here today. God is pleased to have secret things. You know how you think that when you get to heaven, everything will become clear to you? And it is true that much that we see through a cloud darkly today will become clear in heaven. But it's also true that there are many secrets that God keeps from us because we are creatures. And it is of the nature of creatures not to comprehend their creator. And so the Bible says... My thoughts, says God, are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. As the heavens are 
higher than the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, my ways above your ways. So secrets. But then the other half of it is God is perfect, and therefore his logic and his reason have not been corrupted by the fall. And I can't say this often enough to those of you who are giving yourself to studying. You know, the basic premise of study is that there is reason and logic that God has put into his creation, and that if we give ourselves to it, it is correct that, that reason and logic are what? Unerring. But what you have to realize is that reason and logic have been corrupted by the fall just like bodies have been. And you're all with me that your body has been corrupted by the fall, just like hearts have been. The mind has not escaped the fall, whereas the heart and the body have suffered. The mind and reason and our ability to think properly, and you've seen this in talking to your husband when he's angry at you. You come up with a very, very logical a very reasonable thing, and for some reason, he can't see it. And why? Because his sinful will has corrupted his logic. And if it's true of your husband in a fight, it's true of academics, right? So today we come in our text to a place where, you know, you see the, the Apostle Paul, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here, on the issue of eating meat sacrificed idols. If you've been here a few weeks, you know that's true. And the truth is both, and it doesn't ever contradict itself. And the only reason I said it does is because that's how we see it. But don't ever use the word contradiction for Scripture. Because what that shows is your lack of faith. You actually believe more in your reasoning ability than you do in Scripture. God is God. If something is in Scripture, it's true. And if something else appears to conflict with it, that's what you've run into is an appearance of conflict. And one of two things is true. Either it's God's secret, and he's chosen to leave you between two propositions, and that's where you belong as a creature, or you are the product of the fall and your brain isn't working right. <laughs> and that really shouldn't be scandalous to you. It should relieve you. Have you noticed how in your life sometimes you'll never understand the command of God until you obey it? Have you ever noticed that in your life? Why is it that you don't understand what God has commanded you until you obey it? Why is that? Be because, don't worry, because when you obey, it inclines your heart to be reasonable and logical. Whereas before you obey, you're illogical and unreasonable. Now, I'm kind of playing games with you because now I'm using reason and logic as the final expression of God's wisdom, right? But you know what I'm talking about. As you have obeyed, you then are able to look back at your rebellion beforehand. And you're able to see it was illogical. It was unreasonable. It became so clear once you obeyed. Why? Well, it's the same reason why you tell your teenage daughter she may not frown. And she says, I feel like frowning. You say to her, no, smile. She says, I don't feel like smiling. And you tell her, the heart must submit to the will. Right? 
Your emotions actually are subordinate to your will. That's why a man that's committing adultery, you tell him, you must not, he says, well, I don't love my, you say, you must love your wife. He'll say, well, how can I do something I can't do? You say, you must. And the minute he turns and repents of his adultery and begins to look at his vows again and to embrace them in his heart, guess what? It's just unbelievable. He begins to love his wife from his heart. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and we've all seen this. We've all seen marriages restored. I wrote a note this morning to a man who I spent years dealing with his adultery. And guess what? His heart is restored. It's restored. Now, as the Apostle Paul walks down this road, you feel like you're getting bounced, a ping pong ball between paddles, right? That's okay. I used uh, an illustration of the first service about this uh, from A.A. Milne. Have any of you read A.A. Milne? Winnie the Pooh, any of the stories. If you've ever read Winnie the Pooh, if you haven't, read it. Just one story with Tigger in it will do. Okay? Tigger is bouncy. And Tigger really makes that morbid, self-pitying, egocentrical Eeyore uncomfortable. Because the more egocentric somebody is, the more control they want, right? <laughs> and you know, you're never entirely in, in, uh, in control when Tigger's around. Because Tigger bounces, <laughs> you know, and bounces and bounces, and it would be okay if it was a mouse bouncing, you know, because I'm bigger than a mouse. But when Tigger bounces, it can like shake the floor, knock down the walls, break the honeypot, you know? Tigger's, well, this is a way of thinking of God, that God's word is bouncy, and no one is ever comfortable with the word of God. And if you ever get comfortable with the word of God, it's because it's not the word of God. This is why in the Old Testament it says, is not my word, what? A fire. Did you know it says that? And then it says, is not my word a what? A hammer. It also says it's sweeter than honey. But doesn't that make sense that when the word of God is a fire and a hammer with us, you know, splitting between joints and marrow... In other words, getting right down into the deepest part of us and splitting it apart, never failing to accomplish what God sends it for. Are you with me? Doesn't it make sense that it's not something you'd ever be comfortable with? And so when you come to the Apostle Paul dealing with division in the church, have I ever told you what our standard is here in this church? Our highest aspiration in this church is that everyone will be equally uncomfortable. Wouldn't that be a good definition of a good marriage? 
a marriage where both the husband and wife are equally uncomfortable, right? If you have the husband and wife both comfortable, you don't have a marriage. Because God has made male and female absolutely incompatible. (laughs) And our modern world lies at us and tells us that they're perfectly compatible and then they rob us of both male and female. And of course, that's what you have to have for them both to be perfectly compatible is there is no male or female, there's only androgyny. Listen, when you read scripture, you should be uncomfortable. If you read scripture and you're comfortable, then either it has comforted you in the loss of your child, in your depression, in your loss of a job, in your not knowing where you're headed, in your doubts about Jesus Christ. And then it's the Holy Spirit working through it to comfort you. But even the way the Holy Spirit works in Scripture to comfort you is uncomfortable. And it's as you go through that lack of comfort that you are comforted. So what I'm trying to do as we go to the text this morning is get you to be absolutely committed to God hiding things from us, to God speaking in ways that make us uncomfortable. I'm trying to get us out of our narcissistic, self-centered safety, you know, where you even have to have different car seats for different ages of children and the mother can't nurse in the car. It's like... You know, the highest value in America is safety, your safety, and then you can sodomize one another. So we all know how safe you are. (laughs) Let God be God. Let God be God. I'm not saying let me abuse you. I'm saying, let God be God. And if your life is uncomfortable right now, God is not stupid. And nothing comes to his son and daughter's lives that he has not sent. Nothing. Do you think that a good father or mother doesn't know where their child is? (laughs) It's like, well, time to get up. Have a good day. The mother sends her two-year-old out into the streets to discover and experience. Why Why would God be a worse parent than the worst mother? God knows us, and God knows exactly what we need. Now, there is a time in every man's life when he meets reality, and I've just met it, which is I have to think what I'm going to (laughs) do. Because, you know, I've prepared you for the text, but I have not said anything about the text yet. 
Except you do know that the text puts you here and here, and you're uncomfortable between the two. You should know that. First verse, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And right there, you see the bounce of the ping pong ball, right? Well, it's lawful. Yeah, but it's not profitable. Well, it's lawful. Yeah, but it, it doesn't edify. And the word edify means improve you spiritually, build you up. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And I said in the first service that, pff, how about a year on that verse? <laughs> Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And so I started to write about that. And what did I write about that? Well, here's what I wrote about that. I mean, you know very well that you and I never seek any good but our own, right? You only seek your good. You don't seek the good of the person sitting next to you. You don't. Now, you're looking at me, you're saying, oh, come on, I'm not that bad. That may be you, it ain't me. I say, okay, fine. Maybe you have occasionally had a glimmer of seeking the good of your husband or wife. But if occasionally you seek the good of your husband and wife, it doesn't extend to your children very often at all. Even if sometimes you, you, you seek the good of your husband or wife, and occasionally your children, you don't actually get mad at them, but you just discipline them from love. You know, that happens always with you wives, right? Right? It's always with perfect equanimity. And for their spiritual good, right? Right? Okay. Even if sometimes you seek the good of your husband, it's just rare, but sometimes. And, and sometimes your children, you know that it doesn't ever extend to seeking the glory of God. And even if sometimes you find it in you to not just seek your own good, but seek the good of your husband, sometimes your children, and, and once in a blue moon during Sunday morning worship, the glory of God... When on earth do you seek the good of other people here in this church? Self-interest is pervasive, right? And so, there's me, myself, and I. And then there's my husband or wife. And then there's my children. And then... Sometimes God, and then the people sitting next to me in the pew, I hate to tell you, but there ain't no time left for my neighbor. And Jesus said what? He said, the greatest command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, when you have a party, don't invite your family, but invite people that can't pay you back. You know, there really is a reason that we need the blood of Jesus. There's a reason why Christians continue to need the active obedience of Jesus. There's a reason why when we come to him in repentance, we have things to repent of. 
But here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is our problems in living for somebody other than ourselves are not news to God. This is the reason the exhortation is there. We are not, not to live for ourselves, we're to live for others. And the reason God gives that command in his word is that you and I live for ourselves. <laughs> Otherwise, why would he give the command? And so God knows us, God knows our hearts, and God is a good father who disciplines us and rebukes us. Right? And then it says what? Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now remember how I told you that you have to submit to scripture and not try to make it logical. And this just seems completely illogical, doesn't it? He's just gotten done saying, what? He's just gotten done saying, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Now, eat whatever you want and don't ask any questions. For conscience sake. And admit to me that that just makes no sense to you. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. So why would he say that? Well, the reason is that two things are going to conspire for you to earn your way to heaven. One is the censoriousness and judgmentalness of other Christians. And one is your self-righteous heart that wants to take pride in your morality, your holiness, your piety, your scrupulosity. Okay? And so those things together are going to make you live according to the lowest common denominator in the church. And so if there's somebody in this church that has a principle against yoga, you're going to go them one better and you're going to have a principle against calisthenics. Because there's always the possibility that calisthenics could become spiritual. Right? Somebody has a principle against beer, you're going to go one better and you're going to have a principle against wine and communion. If somebody has a principle against movies, you're going to go one better and say you have a principle against televisions. If somebody has a principle against being in the temple, a part of the ritual, as a Christian, eating with the pagans as they worship, right? You're going to have a principle against eating anything that has had even a part of the skin singed in respect to their pagan gods that served you at your neighbor's house once a year when they invite you over for a summer party. And it's not because of your neighbor. <laughs> it's because your conscience has, be, has been taken captive by the, uh, the, uh, the oppressive censoriousness of other Christians. And so what does he say? Well, listen to what he says. What he actually says is, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions. And then he gives the reason, for conscience sake. In other words, like Luther would say in the commentary in Galatians, you have to fight to protect your conscience. And the battle never stops. Because Satan is always trying to turn you into a Roman Catholic. And you say, where did that come from? 
I say, he's going to get you on that little mouse wheel where you light the candles, you go to the mass, you say your confession, you did it, did it, did it, did it. It isn't accidental. There are seven sacraments, right? Because that keeps the wheel turning. And pretty soon, you are taking confidence in the fact that you don't just go to mass once a week. You go every single day, right? You're not a good Catholic unless you go every day, right? And then you're going to be buying masses to be said by at monasteries, other places for your dead relatives for purgatory. And you're going to make sure that you don't miss out on the plenary indulgences. And you're going to make the trek to, to what? To the cathedral in La Ciudad de Mexico. And you're going to crawl up the stairs on your knees. I've been there. I've seen it. Why do we do these things? Because there's no end to the self-righteousness of man and his belief that that self-righteousness earns him salvation. And so here the church in Corinth is filled with people that tell you if you're really spiritual. And what they mean by that is if you've spoken in tongues. <laughs> okay, if you're really spiritual. And what they mean by that is if you don't even eat meat at all because you can't be sure in Corinth that that meat has not somehow, somewhere, you know. And the really spiritual people in that church have their consciences in bondage. In bondage. And there's no freedom in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says what? He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions. For conscience sake. In other words, be a bulldog protecting your conscience. Don't let anybody take you captive. And then he gives a second reason for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Now, think of all the parts of this earth that you really don't think is the Lord's. For instance, think of the university. Where did universities come from? <laughs> hey, they came from God, the only true God. I'm not saying that nobody in pagan lands has had thoughts and has recorded them. Good books, good plays, good literature. Never a psychological novel anywhere but in the West. But you look at the West and it's unbelievable the honor and dignity that have been given for centuries to women. We have never asked our wives to burn themselves to death when their husband dies. You see, Christians know the God who made us. And we know that the earth belongs to him and everything in it. And therefore, we honor women. We honor the life of the mind. We believe in empiricism. The Enlightenment is a Western gift. Everybody wants to act as if the Enlightenment is a gift of secularists. <laughs> Completely bogus. The Enlightenment is based upon the logic of the universe that God has been pleased to put in it. All truth, Arthur Holmes used to say, is God's truth. It doesn't surprise him. And all sin is illogical. All right. And so when Paul says here, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, what that means is, are you with me? Sugar. Hmm? 
refined sugar, white sugar, is God's gift to us. Not just brown sugar, not just fruit or honey or honey in the comb, unpasteurized honey from China. They can't even figure out where honey comes from anymore. Did you know that? Think of all the principles we as Christians make to one-up one another about food. I've told you about our small group when Mary and I were first married. There's a couple in there, and, you know, they're all connected with UW-Madison, right? And so all of us were very intelligent in our commitments and sins. And so this one couple, really sweet couple, but, oh, they would not have anything to do with sugar. They didn't even have children, and, and they were, like, manic about it. And so you would listen to them make the distinctions between fruit and sugar and brown sugar and molasses and honey and all this stuff. And, you know, you know, you'd have to stifle your yawns. And they'd go on and on, waxing eloquent. And so when they came over, as they did often to our house, because Mary Lee was the cook for the group, you couldn't have ketchup. I mean, we were poor. How do poor people live without ketchup? <laughs> you know? And then one day I was at their house, and for some reason I went on their back porch, and it had a door into the house and then a door outside, and in between was the back porch with walls, and covering those walls for floor to ceiling was diet soda pop. And I remember, like it was yesterday, looking at that soda pop and thinking, that's it. I'm done. I have no patience from this point on. Because I thought, you know, if this high moral commitment of theirs allows them to never stop drinking chemical sweeteners, it's like, you know, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> You know, it's ludicrous. Now, listen. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. Sex is good. Sex is good. Sex was made by God. It's beautiful. Intimacy. Marriage. The marriage bed when it's kept pure. Hating even the clothes stained. All right. Sugar. White. White bread. Can you say it with me? White bread. Okay. And I'm not being a racist. Okay. Soda pop in, can you say it with me? 24-ounce cups, you know? Michael Bloomberg, right? Okay, say it. 24-ounce, okay? Lots of babies. Is good, okay? Pigs are good. Hmm. 
gluten. All right, I know, none of us are supposed to be glutens. <laughs> you know what Rita Cuffey used to say? She used to say that she refused to fly because Jesus had said, lo, I will be with you always. <laughs> okay, listen. When a culture says that sodomy is good, what it does is it makes an infinite variety of little laws to keep you in bondage, to take your eye off the ball of the large laws that it's destroying. Do you understand that? And so what's going on today is you have to have different car seats for every three months of your child's growth. You can't nurse in the car. You, they have police standing at the stop sign to see if you have your, your seatbelt on. All right. Oh, yeah. You better watch out. They do that in Bloomington. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do it all over. Our, yeah. They stand. Well, you, it's over by the university that I've watched him do it. Um, Smoking, I think it's hilarious, and so now you can't smoke in parks, you know? I wonder if you stood there and went, <sighs> you know, hot air rises, would it still be illegal? What if you got on top of an eight-foot stepladder? What if you climbed to the top of a tree and blew up? <sighs> would it still be illegal? Now, come on. Everybody here should, should realize it's just ridiculous. Why? Why is it? The earth is the Lord's. Everything belongs to him. And you say, well, he made tobacco. And I say, yeah, he made tobacco. He also made alcohol. It didn't escape his attention that fruit ferments, that grapes ferment, that hops, right? And so when you get together with other Christians and they come up with these lists of things that you're not supposed to do, and as it turns out, your weaker brother is the senior elder. <laughs> you should stop and go, wait a second. He's not my weaker brother. And it's the pastor. You should say, wait a second. The pastor isn't my weaker brother. And so I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm going to go to the meat market. And I'm going to buy whatever I want to. And if I like steak, I'm going to. As a matter of fact, if I like, what's it called? Um, uh, not the New York Strip and not the. Huh? Yeah, the ribeye, ha! Loaded with fat. If I want to have a ribeye, I'm going to have a ribeye. And I'm not going to apologize. Because God made the ribeye. It didn't escape his attention. You say, yeah, but in the Old Testament, you're allowed to eat the fat. I say, we're not in the Old Testament. We're in, the ribeye is good covenant times. <laughs> right? Now listen. Listen. Listen to me. This is a very serious thing. Do not allow other Christians to take you captive. Do not do it. There are endless spiritual reasons why people are going to come into a potluck and try to put you in bondage about whether you eat dessert, whether you put sugar in your coffee or your tea. And as it happens, I don't like dessert. I just want to hold off until I get my ice cream. <laughs> and I don't put sugar in my drinks, right? 
And I don't like soda pop, so don't say this is about me. It has nothing to do with me. We've never had soda pop in our house. But I don't think I'm spiritual because of that. I think I'm actually perverse because I don't like soda pop because I see so many people enjoying it, I think there must be something wrong with me. Right? I have no objection to people not eating gluten if they have a gluten intolerance or allergy. I have no objection to people not eating refined sugar if they feel like they're addicted to it and as a gift to God, they're disciplining themselves or if they're diabetic. I have no objection to people not drinking beer if they have a father and grandfather and great-grandfather who have been alcoholics, or if they see that they're a habit, what's it called, an addictive personality. I have no objection to you cutting down on your eating because you see that you've become a glutton whose God is his belly. I have no question many people here have their belly is their God in this church. I have no harm, no embarrassment in telling you that I always think of my purchase of ice cream in moral, spiritual terms, right? I try to discipline how much I eat. I have no objection to you going down the aisle at Walmart and having spiritual battles every aisle you go down. But don't tell me about it. Because if Christian spirituality in America today has so absolutely low that all we can discuss is what we do and don't eat and drink, it's pathetic. It just shows we're worldly. Because what? Because publishers will tell you, I've told you this before, there's three books that'll sell. Books on the Civil War, books on dogs, and books on diets. If you want a bestseller, write a diet book. And if that's spirituality, and if I hear discussions of diets and calories and weight and stuff in this church, I'm intolerant of it. And you say, well, yeah, that's because you're fat. I say, no, it's not because I'm fat. It's not. It's, I used to be thin. I had absolute commitments on this before I ever put on the weight I've put on. My commitment is that we have a standard that is outside of this world. And so the Apostle Paul really does say what? He really does say, go ahead and buy meat at the meat market. And that's a spiritual issue because it's demon worship. If it's been sacrificed to idols, he says, go ahead and buy it. And then he goes on and says, and if your neighbor invites you over and you want to go, don't ask them about the meat that they serve you. And so what this means is, Matthew Henry says, Christians are supposed to be public men. And so the minute we hit that first, I'm sitting here thinking, how many of us have been invited in a year to a pagan's home? We don't even associate with them. And why not? Well, because if they invite us over, we're going to have to ask them whether that meat's been sacrificed to idols. And you say, oh, no, that doesn't happen in Bloomington. I say, okay, fine. You're not going to eat their white bread. You don't eat gluten. You're not going to drink drinks with sugar in them. Right? Right? 
I mean, come on. And certainly, if they offer you wine or beer, you'll say, ha, 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 no thank you. And I think, you know, what is life about anyhow? Didn't the Bible say that we should be concerned about others' interests and not our own? Look, if you don't ever touch gluten, you only ask for wheat bread, all right? You never eat processed sugar, okay? You never eat a porterhouse. <laughs> okay? You don't buy haagen Where that's probably gotten you is that you're a moralist. And it's probable that people around you know those are your commitments. Do you understand this? And if people around you know those are your commitments, then you're probably not getting invited to people's houses easily. And there's probably discussion about what you can and can't eat. And probably your next-door neighbor is so aware of your idiosyncrasies that they wouldn't think of asking you over because they were sure that they'd offend you somehow. And isn't that really a good definition of who we are as Christians today? That we're just so easily offended. And we're so public with what? Not our love, but our principles. <laughs> and what good is that? Now, let me go back and be very clear here. I am not saying that I think that if your father was an alcoholic that you should go ahead and drink beer. I am not saying that if you have a food intolerance that you should have faith and overcome it. I have absolutely no objection to you avoiding gluten. I have no objection to you avoiding whatever you're allergic to. I don't want to shove peanuts down you, right? If you're allergic to peanuts, I don't think if you just had faith you'd get over it right? I have no objection to you confessing the sin of gluttony and cutting back on what you eat. No objection to you getting more exercise. No objection to you asking prayer, as long as it's sort of a hidden request of a really special friend that doesn't oppress your small group with everybody there going into a tizzy about how they have 10 extra pounds too. Do you understand? And that's what I don't have an objection to. Legitimate allergies, legitimate spiritual disciplines, legitimate sins should be repented of. All right? But if you don't have in your... Uh, uh, if you don't have in your uh, food life and in your wine life, okay, if you don't have in your food and wine life some category of commitment that... The placeholder for it is eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions. If that scripture never comes to your mind, then you're not biblical. God didn't put that in there because it applied to the Corinthians and has no application today. Okay? And so what you need to do is think, where in my life am I allowing my conscience to be bullied? Okay, you with me? And at that point, think those thoughts. There will be time enough for all the other thoughts about not offending the weaker brother, right? But sometime, you should refuse to allow your conscience to be taken bondage. 
And finally, if the Bible actually says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. How could you ever have any personal contact and thoughts about that verse and the next one if you've made yourself such a stink to your neighbors that they have absolutely no desire to invite you over? <laughs> you know? Are you all with me? Why would your neighbors want you to come over? You're just going to come over and tell them everything that's wrong with them. You're just going to find the first opportunity to condemn them for being sinners. But you've got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus hung with them. They were his special friends. The people that hated Jesus were the Christians. And you say, well, no, they weren't Christians. All right, fine. The Pharisees and Sadducees and all the good religious people. And so, it makes sense that people in Bloomington can't stand you if they're Christians. <laughs> okay? But what you really don't want is honest pagans not being able to stand you. Because they're the ones that there's hope for. Does that make sense to you? Honest pagans are what? Honest. And so make yourself someone that they want as a friend. Now, I said that's the end, and it is the end, but I'm going to close with a story about that. You remember a few months ago, I preached a similar sermon about us having a heart for people who aren't proud and rich and famous. Remember that sermon like six months ago? Do you know that no sooner had I preached that sermon than I was leaving my driveway one day <laughs> and the Beverly Hillbillies drove up. Now, if you've been to my house, you know it's pretty weird that the Beverly Hillbillies would drive up to my house because it's at the end of a little road to nowhere and it's a cul-de-sac. And here came the, the most raggedy old SUV. In fact, it was from before the days that were even called SUVs. I don't know what it was. And I mean, it was rust. And then behind it was the most ratty car trailer you've ever seen in your life. And on it was an a, a SUV that was beaten to smithereens. It had rolled. It had broken windows. And, and oozing out of every window was human life. <laughs> right, love? I mean, just willy-nilly human life, you know? In other words, tons of children and tons of women and one bedraggled man. And I looked, and there, one of the tires on the back of the trailer had popped, and so the weight was so much on that trailer that it was scoring the road as it went down the road, the, the wheel, you know. It was just metal on asphalt, you know. And they stop at the bottom of our driver, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready, <laughs> you know. And Marilyn and I spent the next few hours doing what you do in that situation, you know. We had him for dinner. It was lovely. And when I was leaving that driveway, I had very important things to do. 
And so if you have a heart that is repentant before God right now, he will give you an opportunity immediately to love people who can never pay you back. And then, trust me, there will be joy in your home. Because for once, it won't be about you. And I know I'm telling you the story, and so I can benefit from it. But you know me. You know my sins. Don't judge me for this. I have to tell you so that you'll have faith, right? And so I'm going to preach this today. So Thursday night, we had an elders meeting, right? And I'm on my way home at midnight. And you know, when you get done elders meeting, you're tired. Very tired. And I get out on 46, and I think to myself, there's no cars coming. This is one of the rare opportunities in my life that I can turn on my brights. And I want you to know I am OCD to the max, and everything gives me delight that works properly, including bright lights that shine way off. And I sit there and think how far those brights shine. You know, I just I think about that, and it gives me great delight. And so I was saying great delight in my lights on bright, and I looked off to the right out of the corner of my eye. I saw a man... And there was a sign, probably from here to the speaker from me. And just as I went by it, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a man with dark clothing on, like this, holding on to the post of the sign. And I thought to myself, that doesn't look good. There's a problem there. But then I thought to myself, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. You know, if I go back to help him, who knows what has happened? Who knows if he's armed? Who knows? You know? And so I prayed. I thought, I'm going to ask God to help me and protect me. You know? Do you ever pray that? If you don't, it's because you never are obedient. (laughs) I thought, I'm going to ask God to protect me. Don't worry, I almost never pray that. All right. And so I did a U-turn on 46, and he protected me. Then I went up and stopped, and there was a semi going by as I was stopped on the side of the road. And I called across to the guy, and I said, are you all right? And he said, would you call the police? And I said, no, get in the car. I'll take you to the hospital, because I knew it takes 25 minutes for the police and the ambulance to come on 45 because I've timed it when there was a bad accident and I was at the accident. (laughs) And so in about eight minutes, I had him at the emergency room. Very nice man. Very nice man. Both the people that we've dealt with, very nice men. The poor. No advocates for them. Listen, life is going to be over very, very, very soon. You don't want to face God and say, I spent my life being a narcissist. I was a woman. I was young. 
I had diabetes. I was a widow. It's hackneyed, but don't forget that old statement, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Okay? So let's close and let's pray. Let's pray that God will give us an opportunity this week to be invited to our neighbor's house and not ask and eat what's put in front of us, right? Okay? Let's pray. Father, you know that our motivations often are wrong. But Father, freely we come to you now and tell you that we desire you to make them right and we confess that our hearts do stray and wander, that we are foolish sheep. Father, we pray this week that all of us will be overrun with people that want us as friends. We pray that we will see those who are honest pagans and that we will come to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will come gracefully without asking questions about the food and drink they give us. We pray that you will give us neighbors who want to be with us. We pray, Father, that you will fill this church with honest men and women who have heard the gospel and have believed. And we pray that you will give us to us, especially this week. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the Corinthians. Thank you that the Corinthians, in fact, were invited to their neighbor's houses. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.